You know, you may have seen online pop up on your social media this, these videos that have come up. It's a video of some people playing a game that some people call back-to-back. -back. And it's kind of like a mix of telephone and Pictionary. And so what you'll see is, you'll see, I think it's up in the corner here, uh, someone takes a piece of paper and puts it on the back of someone in front of them and they'll begin drawing a picture and whatever the person feels on their back, they take that and draw it on, the pic, uh, draw it on a piece of paper on the person in front of them and so on and so on and so on. In this case, it's just two people doing that. And it's really funny because you can see how the picture evolves based on each person's experience, based on each person's abilities in drawing and based on each person's interpretation. A lot of times that's often how we can come to God and, and God's truth. We bring our lenses, we bring our histories, perhaps even our traumas, and bring that as we come before God. And that shapes how we view God. And as we see in that, that, that uh, game, as the picture evolves, we might be able to get uh, good at critiquing how the picture was passed to us, or maybe a couple of steps before us. But the most helpful thing is to go back right to the source who, or, uh, who has originally drawn the drawing so that we can see how our understanding compares to that. You know, we've been in this book of Hosea for the past couple of weeks, looking at how Hosea's marriage to Gomer speaks prophetically to the people of Israel of God's pursuing love for them. Now, as we uh, come to the text, you probably noticed that this image of marriage continues over and over throughout this book. Because it's through the marriage of Hosea to Gomer that God chooses to reveal the truth of God's love to the world. And for some of you, the references to marriage, but also to the way that Gomer is treated, can be triggering because of what she goes through and because of what you've experienced or what you've observed in your own life. If that's your story, I am so sorry. Because that's not the way that God has intended for human relationships to flourish. We may experience the brokenness of relationships and it's understandable how, how that brokenness might affect how we might view God and come towards God and God's truth. But if we believe that this here is God's word and God has chosen to reveal God's truth to us in a particular time, in a particular place, to a particular people, then we can come and ask God, what does this mean for us? How do we face the broken realities of our world in light of God's word? So today I invite uh, you to come and explore this idea and this metaphor of marriage that we find in Hosea and see how God has chosen this metaphor to reveal God's love to the world. When we come to Hosea, we and have gotten over the shock of how, what God asks Hosea to do by marrying a prostitute and wooing her back despite her unfaithfulness, the number of graphic images of this broken relationship continues to strike us. Gomer's unfaithfulness to Hosea was an image of Israel's unfaithfulness to the Lord God. In chapter 2, uh, which Rachel read a portion of for us, begins with the Lord speaking to the people of Israel, saying in verse 2, Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I 
and not her husband. Because of Israel's unfaithfulness, this relationship was over. A violation had occurred. But what caused this partnership to break? What was the nature of this unfaithfulness? Gomer and Israel's waywardness in the relationship was rooted in this attitude of getting versus giving. In verse 5, you'll see that what, what Israel says in the words of Gomer, she, uh, she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. And for that, that action, God condemns it as spiritual adultery with a consequence. In verse 12, God says, I will ruin her vines and her fig leaves, which she, she said were her pay, what she received from her lovers. Gomer sought to satisfy her perceived needs in violation of her marriage commitment to Hosea. And it's how Gomer, it's how Gomer looked to these other lovers apart from Hosea that was a problem. Now, we are far and distant from this time and circumstance that, that Hosea is, is prophesying. But Hosea's hearers would have made an immediate connection. You see, people who lived in ancient Palestine, like the Israelites, and like the Canaanites who lived around them, were an agrarian society. They were deeply connected and deeply dependent on the produce of the land. If they pro the land didn't produce, then they didn't eat. You see, the gods of Canaan were fertility gods that promised fruitfulness of the land. So Israel, in their ignorance, believed that God, the Lord God that they worshipped, provided these other gods to provide for them. So Israel's kings and priests would lead Israel to not, not only worship the Lord God, but worship Baal, the God, the God of the Canaanites, as their neighbors did. The only problem was the term Baal isn't just the name for one God. There are multiple ones. It's, in fact, in that original language, it can be translated as Lord or King or Master. You know, where the Lord God was intended to be the King and the Master over the people of Israel, Israel believed that these other lords and gods could give them what they wanted. Like Gomer, Israel looked outside of their partnership with God for their needs to be met. Israel began to parse out their needs to each individual little L lords based on what they could get out of those relationships. But worship of Baal wasn't just a matter of bowing down to some idol that you had in your home or at some temple. Baal worship also involved going to the temple and being involved in temple prostitution. They believed that sleeping with religious sex slaves in Baal's temple would bring fruitfulness to their produce. So their unfaithfulness to the living God wasn't just merely a conceptual belief, but it was expressed in a very tangible and practical manner. Israel's idolatry with other gods was a breaking of this partnership with the living God. And this spurning of the relationship resulted in the Lord God considering Israel as no longer wife to me. On paper, they were God's special people. But in reality, Israel's relationship with God was deeply broken. They were separated and living apart and unfaithful to this partnership that God had called them to. You know, we have broken images of marriage now too. There have been many doubts and fears expressed about the institution of marriage. Some people will doubt the need of government authorities or even religious institutions to sanction what they see as a love relationship. If people are in love, what's the big deal? Why do we need 
religion or government to tell us that we're in love. Some see marriage as continuing a patriarchal power play. Others reject any form of committed relationship as a limit on their personal freedom. Others will see the marriage institution as a continued oppression of women or LGBTQ people. Some outspoken critics even, might even charge that marriage is considered legalized rape. These are all harsh criticisms. You know, as a high-power pro high profile power philosopher couple, there's a lot of P's in there, Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir always expressed an opposition to the institution of marriage. But despite that opposition, they ha still demonstrated some sort of lifelong partnership to one another. They both agreed to have an open relationship with others that matched their existentialist ideals of individual freedom. This kind of open and very public relationship was groundbreaking for their time in 1929, almost 100 years ago. Yet, de Beauvoir expresses in her autobiography a deep sense of jealousy. While their relationship was considered equal and to uphold this value of individual equality and freedom, Sartre's side, her partner's side, seemed a little more equal than hers. While she had a few long-lasting uh, occasions of passion herself, Sartre engaged in countless affairs one after another, to which she had to bear and reconcile for herself. You know, as we look to these broken images of our earthly marriages and these partnerships that we have before us, we must be careful to, do, to not do two things. One is to react merely against the broken images without looking at what the image is meant to convey. And two, not to not succumb to the myth of modernity, that our cultural and technological progression means that all previous forms that we have experienced have nothing to offer to us. If we believe that we are more progressive and that our views have arrived at, the views that we have arrived at are better without taking the time to understand how we have gotten there and the significance of what God has given to us, then we may be guilty of this pride of modern progression. Like the Israelites, that pride in modern progression can too become an idol for us. Just like the drawing game that we opened up the message with, we might have created a beautiful image for ourselves based on what we felt was given to us or critiquing what came to us. But it, could also, but it also may be very different from what the original image was meant to convey. If marriage is an image or a metaphor, we must remember that metaphors aren't the ultimate reality. They provide a picture or a suggestion of the true reality. In Hosea, we have several layers of metaphor. In Hosea 2, verse 16, uh, describes Homer and Gomer's relationship as a metaphor of God's relationship with Israel. Hosea lovingly pursues Gomer as the Lord, loving, Lord God lovingly pursues Israel, despite Israel's blatant and wanton unfaithfulness. But if you take a step back, we realize that marriage itself is a fundamental metaphor for God's relationship to God's people. God isn't just master is, or just king and lord, but God is husband to a bride. Throughout scripture, we see God's desire to partner with a particular group of human beings to share and multiply in the blessing of God in creation, expressed in this idea of covenant. 
Covenant is a lifelong, exclusive commitment to the two, two partners in, in a relationship. It's a committed partnership that has defined terms of that partnership. You see it from the very beginning. Adam and Eve are chosen to be God's partner, but they mess up that single term of partnership when they eat from the tree of good, knowledge of good and evil. And then God chooses Noah and Abraham and makes promises and agreements with them. To Noah, he says, I will no longer, uh, no, I, will no, I will not destroy the peoples of this earth again. And to Abraham, God promises to bless his family and make descendants uh, numerous so that the world may be blessed through this one family. But it isn't until Exodus 19, when God gives Moses the covenant, what we often refer to as the covenant. That's the terms of the partnership that we think of when we think of the Ten Commandments. We see in full detail what God expects in this exclusive, committed partnership that God's people are to have with the living God. The Lord God was meant to be the only leader and partner for Israel. Yet a few generations later, uh, Israel breaks that partnership when they demand a king to lead them. Still, the Lord continues to repeat over and over and over again, you will be my people and I will be your God. No matter how much Israel fails in the partnership, God reminds them over and over again, I will be your God and you will be my people. You see it in Exodus. You see it in Israel's prayer book in the Psalms. You see it in Jeremiah. And as the nation of Israel collapses, as it's doing here in the time of Hosea, Hosea, prophets like Hosea and Jeremiah use this language of marriage and betrothal. Fast forward into the New Testament. After Jesus arrives on the scene, his relationship to, with the church is likened to that of a bridegroom to a bride. In Ephesians 5, Paul speaks of Christian marriage as pointing to the reality of Christ's covenanted partnership with the church, the body of Christ. And this idea of God's partnership with God's people is repeated in 2 Corinthians and Hebrews and in Revelations. In fact, we find some permutation of this metaphor at least 43 times in Scripture. Back to Hosea, verse 16. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. That again is covenant vocabulary, partnership vocabulary. As Hosea alludes to, we look forward with Israel to a day to the, of completion of history. And in that day, God will reunite uh, God's people as groom and a bride at a wedding feast depicted in Revelation. Because of what Jesus has done, the, this covenanted promise with Israel has been expanded to include all of God's people who respond in faith to Jesus, God's Son. And it's through Christ Jesus there will, that there will come a time when this partnership comes to fruition in all of its beauty and glory. So it's with this view of marriage and partnership between God and God's people that we look at what marriage means for us today. Now, we must be cautious of eisegesis. It's what theologians refer to as reading into the text what we want to read as opposed to exegesis, which is reading, letting the text read us. When we come across images and metaphors that are difficult and challenging, we must not only ask ourselves, God, what, is, what did you intend as you revealed this truth to us? But why am I responding the way I'm responding? 
What's going on here and what don't I know in my heart? Covenanted partnership is such a significant image that continues throughout the biblical narrative that we cannot ignore its prominence. So, summary so far. We've covered broken images of the marriage partnership that we find illustrated in Gomer uh, with Hosea and Israel with God. And then we have, two: the marriage metaphor is pointing to this reality of God's relationship with God's people. So now, how do we live this out? How do we live out this metaphor? Now, you might be asking a couple of things. So there's two caveats that I want to start with, at least. Every metaphor has limits. So here are two to note. Number one, this image of God's people as the bride of, of, of Christ is a corporate image. This partnered, covenanted relationship describes God's relationship with God's people as a whole. God's looking for a partner in Israel. God's looking for a partner in the church, the body of Christ. And this metaphor breaks down when, it come, when it's applied exclusively to individuals. This means that I, as a Jesus follower, I'm not married to God, and I'm not Jesus's boyfriend. That means uh, we live out the reality of this committed relationship this partnership with God in the context of the people of God. Secondly, this also means that your marital status in this present life does not bear any reflection on how faithfully you live out this partnership in following Christ. Being in a married relationship does not make you a better Christ follower, and neither does being single. The modern American or Western church has, uh, can be guilty of idolizing this idea of romance and the nuclear family as the best option. But our idea of what it means to be a family is often so far from what God describes in Scripture. But that's a whole other message for us. So with that in mind, here are two implications of how we live out this metaphor of marriage. In terms of power, God is God, and Israel and the church are God's people. God is God, and you have Israel and the church are God's people. There is a slight power imbalance here, right? There is no true equal to the living God, except God. So we need God to make us equal partners. And that's what we find in Hosea 2, verse 18, where God says, In that day, I will make a covenant for them. It's not just, I will make a covenant with them, but I will make a covenant for them on their behalf. God fulfills our terms of that relationship, of that partnership for us. And we see that day arrive when Jesus, God's son, goes to the cross. That's the good news of God's love. We can't and we won't ever live up to the partnership terms that a holy God demands from a worthy partner. As the children's story reminded us in Paul, Paul thought he was the best, but that wasn't good enough. Even the best could not be a worthy partner for God. So in God's love, God does it for us and invites us simply to trust in God. Verse 19 and 20 says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and in compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. Now these are characteristics, but they also describe purpose. Where we are unfaithful, where we are unrighteous, where we are unjust, where we fail to love and act with compassion, God does the work to see those things in us by crediting us with the holy perfection of Jesus, God's Son. 
Since the beginning of creation, God's intent for humanity was to bear God's holy image, perfect image in creation. God wanted that kind of partner for the world, but we have been incapable of living that, and we will continue to be incapable of doing that on our own strength. Ever since our first parents disobeyed. And all of creation is suffering ever since. Yet God's promise promises that through this partnership, our per- purpose, our true purpose, to help all of creation, all of humanity flourish, just as God promised to Abraham. In Hosea 21 and 22, towards the end of the, the chapter, we see that God describes that he will respond to the earth and to the grain and to the wine and to the olive oil, and they that's the creation, will respond to Jezreel. It's another name for Israel. God's blessing and partnership with Israel is meant to be a blessing to all creation. Humanity's purpose in creation is restored by responding in faith to God's Son, Jesus. And apart from a restored relationship with the living God, we re- remain apart from the fully living this purpose for which we are created. Now, if you've noticed so far, power and purpose operate one way in this, in this marriage metaphor between God and God's people. God uses God's power to make us worthy partners in the relationship. God alone is the agent, and God alone is the goal. But in an earthly, mar- earthly marriage relationship, that relationship is two ways. One gender does not hold more innate ability or power than the other. Two are equally valued equally gifted individuals, equal but very different image bearers that come together in a partnership for life to make the other partner more complete and more holy. Unlike God, whose power acts one way upon God's people, both partners in a marriage relationship rely on God's power to give of themselves to make their partner more complete in Christ's body. I often say to couples who are getting married um, that, that marriage is not primarily about romance or about compatibility or about attraction or about doing things for life together. It's, it is those things. It can be those things, but that's not fundamentally what Christian marriage is. Christian marriage is fundamentally a commitment to one person exclusively for the rest of their lives to make the other person more like Christ with all of their imperfections. For Christ's followers, that's why the act of sex has been connected to marriage. It's one of the most intimate and vulnerable interactions, serving for procreation, but also for pleasure. And within the covenant of marriage, two partners can be fully accepted and loved as they are, without inhibition, without covering. And so each partner can give completely to one another, as opposed to testing things out and often found wanting and leaving each other in a vulnerable state. As Hosea's marriage was a prophetic statement for Israel, so earthly marriage may be a prophetic statement of God's love for the world. In Scripture, we find that covenanted partnership is not fundamentally built on attraction or compatibility. It's not built fundamentally on uh, material transactions for political uh, alliances. The metaphor of marriage ultimately speaks of God's desired partnership with God's chosen and special people to accomplish God's purpose in creation. 
And remember, this doesn't mean that you must be married on earth to walk in partnership with God. Our faith in Christ joins us to the people to whom God desires to partner with. And it's within this group of people that God invites us to do the same for one another. God invites each one of us to trust in him and walk out this partnership with God, with God's power and for God's purpose. Whether we are married or whether we are single, our commitment to God is lived out in this commitment to one another in the body of Christ. And that moves us towards this glorious perfection by God's grace that we could never do this on our own. That's why we gather every Sunday, whether it's virtually or in person. That's why we value being together because it's in those relationships that we spur each other on to be more like Christ. Hosea reminds us that no matter how far we might fall from this partnership, God's love continues to woo us back into relationship, taking, uh, making us whole. God's love pursues us, making us whole by taking on the brokenness upon himself so that we together with the body of Christ might live faithfully as God's partner in the world. And particularly, particularly in these emotional and difficult times of our world and of our nation, how critical is it for us as God's people, to prophesy to the world of God's pursuing love through our partnership with and for the living God. Amen.